welcome to the Reflective Teaching in a Digital Age podcast series. In these conversations, we discuss technology-inspired changes in STEM education. The title of today's episode is Project-Based Learning in Elementary and Middle School STEM Classrooms. Nicole and I will talk with Barbara Bratzel, who is a K-8 STEM teacher at the Shady Hill School in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She also consults at the Center for Engineering and Education Outreach at Tufts University. She is the author of several robotics books, including Getting Started with Lego Robotics, a user's guide that will be published by No Starch Press this year. Barbara, welcome to our podcast series. It's wonderful to have you here. And we're looking forward to a very interesting conversation about teaching in school, about teaching science with project-based types of activities. And I want to mention, thinking about about our conversation today, I thought that I know you for over 15 years. So it's really wonderful to reconnect and to learn about things that you've been doing. And uh, I'm sure our audience will find it very interesting. So to start with, if you don't mind talking a little bit about yourself and your background in teaching and where you teach. Well, thank you so much for having me, Tasha and Nicole. Uh, my name is Barbara Bratzel, and I am a STEM teacher, and I've actually <laughs> had quite a journey in teaching. I started out as a high school math teacher and have been steadily moving down ever since, and um, I've taught science in middle school. I run the makerspace at my school when it is open. At the moment, because of COVID, it is not, and I also teach coding. So right now I'm teaching a lot of coding to our youngest students, kindergarten and first and second and third, in addition to middle school science. That's interesting. Could you talk to us some more about what exactly are they coding? What, I guess, language, coding languages are they using? And how do you teach coding to young children? Uh, well, I'm doing, we're doing block-based coding. I actually have some third graders who know Python and they They have the option of doing their projects in Python if they want, but most of the kids are using Scratch-like languages or for the younger ones, languages like Scratch Junior, so that the kids for whom reading is still a struggle, uh, that's not an issue. And clearly, I'm not trying to turn them into proficient six-year-old coders, but I do want them to get a sense of what coding is and that the idea that computers actually have coding and humans involved in the way they work and to have the kids feel like coding is not something that other people do. Coding is something that they can do and that it's fun and it's something that, that they could possibly do as a career even. <laughs> one of my, a couple of days ago, one of my first graders, as we're leaving, as they're leaving class, she says to me, you don't need to teach me coding anymore, Ms. Bratzel. I got this. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think may have been a little optimistic on her part, but, <laughs> but that's the that's the attitude I want. Is yeah, I got this. That's impressive. You, you said first grader, so right. I'm just curious, what does coding look like in the first grade? Mm. Uh, we do a couple things. I do some of the activities from Code.org. I don't know if you're familiar with those. No, I haven't heard about no, that. No, no. It's a really interesting program. So it's it's walking them through puzzles that teach them loops and events and gradually build up. But the kids are doing it at their own pace. It's actually, I think, a very effective program, but it's very cut and dried. And they're they're solving puzzles, which for kids who love puzzles, it's very intriguing. And then I mm -hmm. also use things like Scratch Junior so that they they're doing more open ended things. And I also do a lot of Lego robotics where they're taking their coding skills and using using them to actually make things move and make things happen. And I think that's a really powerful connection for kids. And also maybe uh, continuing a little bit on the theme of the age, because speaking more generally in schools, it's not something that you find common kids as young as the first graders working on projects, working on Lego types of projects. What is your experience? I don't know if we can maybe generally talk about elementary school and middle school comparison. How do kids respond to that? Mm. That's so interesting. I would not say I've seen that at all. 
Um, but I'm at a school that's very much a project-based school. So from from our youngest kids who are four, they get used to doing projects. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what they're doing is is project-based, and they that's what they think of as school. And that's what school is, is that you are doing projects with people. I could see where if you hadn't grown up that way, suddenly getting thrown into projects would be tough. But I think even um, I've done some work with the Malden Public Schools going in and doing novel engineering with the kids. And I think they they just take to it naturally. I mean, who doesn't like solving problems and, and inventing things? So I find kids tend to be very enthusiastic about it, especially if there's a context mm-hmm. like novel engineering where they've been reading a book and there's a character in the book with a problem and they are trying to come mm-hmm. up with solutions to that problem and help the character. That's really compelling for kids. I like this idea of this contextualized problem solving. So, um, do you always have a book? Do you create some of these contexts your own, um, off your own? How do, how are these contexts derived? Um, with novel engineering, I use a lot. So sometimes it's books that the kids are reading in class. If you can tie into something they're already reading, that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, I also will use um, fables, for example, which are, tend to be much smaller. You know, yeah. they're, they're a paragraph long. But pretty much all fables have some sort of dilemma in them. And so you can read a fable with the kids and they are, they pick one of the characters in the fable and come up with a solution to the problem. The fox that's gotten stuck in the well or whatever the, the problem is. And they're engineering a solution to it, um, which works well with craft materials and works great with Legos. I've done a lot of, of, of projects like that using um, Lego robotics where they can actually motorize their solutions and code their solutions. I want to follow up on um, this idea. Something's turning around in my head about creativity. So you teach a range of first graders up to middle school. What what are your um, experiences with how creative their solutions are as, as the, I guess, across the range of students? I would say they tend to be really creative, but I think you have to build up to that. Mm-hmm. So you can't just throw them in the deep end. You can't give yeah. them some huge project and say, go solve this because they don't know where to start. But if you're mm-hmm. starting with smaller projects, if you're doing fables where you identify the, you know, here's the character whose problem we are going to solve and here's the problem they need to solve. Fox is stuck in the well. How can we find ways to get out? And they're working on that fairly small problem and you're building up then to them reading a whole novel and then choosing a character with a problem from that novel where there are lots and lots of possibilities. So I think if you're scaffolding it so that they feel confident in their abilities, they can tackle pretty big things and be pretty creative about it. And I feel like our our makerspace really has fed into that uh, Mm -hmm. when we have it open. Of the, the, the kids get used to the idea of coming in and solving problems and making things with their hands to help them mm-hmm. solve problems. Barbara, you know, I was just interested also if we step a little bit back to just big idea of project-based learning, because I remember when we talked and you mentioned something about no textbooks in the school. <laughs> and I think for many people, <laughs> whether you teach project-based type of experiences or not, but textbook is something that is extremely common, <laughs> whether right. you're in school or whether you're in the university. And I guess for our listeners, how to understand better what is project-based school? What are the main principles of that? Are there any particular philosophies that guide student experience? Well, I think certainly the idea is that kids are very competent and that kids can kids are interested in finding out things and kids can solve problems. So it's it's based on the idea that kids are are competent and can be in charge of their own learning. On the other hand, it's not all just project based. So we're not using textbooks, but we are writing a lot of background materials for them and problems for them to solve and things like that. Uh, and my school tends to attract people who love curriculum design because otherwise you do not sign up to teach at a school with no textbooks if you don't absolutely mm-hmm. love, unless you absolutely love curriculum design, which we do. So that's mm-hmm. really exciting to tailor the curriculum to the students. 
how big are typically the classes? Um, under 20. Yeah. And do they work in groups always, or do you also have individual type of activities, like a blend of both? It's a blend. I'm, I'm laughing because at the moment it's mostly individual because we can't put them together. And this oh, year we yeah. are a little bit, but it, because of COVID restrictions, they really are doing much more stuff on their own, which has been really interesting for us because we were used to always doing partner work. Hmm. That was my next Sometimes, question. Yes. And now having kids do individual work, we can really see some benefits for that. Um, and I, I think we will never go back to doing partner work to the extreme we did before this, that it will be more of a blend. Some projects will be individual and some will be group. Huh. That's interesting. What, um, so what do you see is the benefit of more individual work? And I'm just asking this question because so frequently we hear about working in group is, in groups is Our really peers. important. Fair yeah. share, you know, and things mm-hmm. like that, working together. So I think sometimes it's a little bit of a skewed focus on mm-hmm. um, kind of the, the group work. And we forget, and then all of a sudden the individual work becomes this kind of idea that you don't want to emphasize it too much. So I'm just wondering, in your experience, going back, going in a different direction. <laughs> um, more individual work. Well, I think some of it is just letting each child have their own set of materials. Mm-hmm. Sometimes changer. So... For the robotics, where we used to always work in pairs, now each kid has their own set. And it has some real advantages. You don't get passengers. You don't get the children who are passive, who let their partner do do all the coding, for example, because every child has to be able to do it on their own. Mm-hmm. But they are doing a lot of collaborating with other kids as they do that. So I'll get kids who even will do the project together step by step, each working with their own robot. If they're collaborating on what should we do next, and then they each change their program that way. And that's fine. It's very much whatever works for them. There are some kids who work completely on their own. And we'll, you know, we push them to try a variety of things, but I also want to leave room for them to find their best way of working. What does your preparation look like uh, as opposed to having peers and now being more individualized work. What does that mean for you in preparing for your class? Huh. Well, one thing it means is there are a lot more groups I have to keep track of. So all of a sudden I have twice as many groups. So things that used to work where I could go around and really meet with each group and talk with them are harder for me because all of a sudden I've got twice as many groups in, in effect. And I'm still working on how to do that because I miss being able to just sit down with a group for five minutes and really work through a problem. You know, I, if I do that with an individual, yeah, <laughs> there's an awful lot of other groups that I'm not helping at that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So breaking that balance, I'm still working on. Um, I do things like check sheets where they'll have a, a list of things they have to do and they're checking off as they go, which helps me see quickly where kids are and who is struggling and needs help and also helps focus them on their own. And they're, they're pretty open-ended check sheets, but you know, that you have to make a robot that can do X. And then once you've got that, you check it off and go on to the next thing. Your way of getting them through skills mm-hmm. you know, while still doing it in a sort of open-ended way where they're solving problems that will teach them a particular, you know, something that, where you really have to use a loop to do it, for example. Mm-hmm. Right. In your experience, do you um, encounter kids, students who really struggle with the approach of open-endedness, with the approach of the project base, that just, it doesn't work for them? Hmm. I feel like I used to, and I don't as much anymore, and I think that's because I have gotten better doing project mm-hmm. things. I don't think kids have changed. I think that's me. I think I, it used to be I wasn't as good at it. And the kids who used to really struggle were the kids who were used to doing everything exactly right, getting it perfect, and they're done. Mm-hmm. And if you're doing something project-based where it's iterative and you're never done, you can always make improvements, that can drive those kids nuts. <laughs> so, so what do you do with I think I'd be, I'm more careful now about how I frame problems. So 
the kids know right from the beginning that there is not going to be a single solution and there's not going to be a finishing point, that there's always more than one way of doing something. There's always more you can do. And if they go in with that mindset, then you don't get the mind works. I'm done in the same way because they know there is no done. It's just, oh, well, we're out of time. So do they get discouraged or is it something that they kind of train out <laughs> and get used to this continuous situation? Um, no, I don't think they get discouraged. I, the trouble I run into is they don't want to stop. Yeah. So the class ends, especially now that we've got all these, um, everybody has their own individual robot. There's a lot of sharing robots. So the ro- they can't save projects from one class to another because there's another class using those robots. And that's the hard thing because they don't want to take it apart. And I'm busy taking pictures of everything because if you've taken a, like a little video of their robot, they're much more willing to take it apart because <laughs> they know that that has been captured. So um, when you were when we were online, were you were the students sent the materials? How did you how did that work? I was online with um, my eighth graders when we first went virtual. And that year, we did a lot of sort of kitchen sink labs. Uh, they were not sent any. Well, actually, that's not true. They were sent very limited materials, but it's mostly things that they had. We were then sending them kits of things um, for, like, I had my my little ones last year virtually. Mm-hmm. And I actually, um, I sent every every kindergartner and every first grader had a little Lego suitcase that has Legos in it and has some other materials I gave them. And all the activities were based out of this suitcase, which was actually really fun to come up with all these different activities, all based on that same limited set of materials. Mm-hmm. But it's really fun to be back and have the full robotic sets again. And how do you judge your students in your experience, um, their engagement with the class material, their engagement with each other? when they were in a virtual um, environment as opposed to now that they are back in the classroom and able to look across and see what someone else is working on across the room? Uh, well, so, so the only time I was completely virtual was with my big kids, my eighth graders, mm-hmm. and that it very hard. I did a lot of breakout rooms yeah. with them, so they were in smaller groups and interacting. I think it was that was easier because we – went virtual in March. And at that point, I really knew the kids pretty well. I think right. if I had virtual with them from the start, that would be really hard. Um, with my little guys last year, it was quite different because the kids were actually in school, mm-hmm. so completely individual and masked. But I was teaching from home. There were some of us who had huge numbers of kids. Um, I taught, what, 230 different kids. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want us in there as super spreaders. So I was actually zooming into their live classrooms. Wow. Were there any particular tools that you want to highlight that worked really well in the virtual environment? Virtual. I mean, it seems silly, but that little suitcase was awesome. Just have a set of materials that they they got to know very well, and then you could give them projects. Like we did, um, we did a unit on Zaha Hadid, the architect read a book about her and talked about how she took um, inspiration from nature. And then they were actually trying to build Zaha Hadid type buildings out of their little Lego sets. And it was fun coming up with a whole range of activities like that for them. There's also, especially recently with a shift to online and hybrid and just different ways of learning and teaching a lot of conversation about social emotional development of kids and Obviously, like I mentioned right now, in your school, everybody's back face to face. And I wonder in sort of the project based environment, how do kids, well, it's hard to say how do they compare to regular schools, but um, in general, if you notice kids' social emotional development, if they had a particular focus on that in this project based environment? Um, I would say yes, because I think you, you can't do group work without having that piece be an important piece. And a lot of what you're teaching them is, is how to collaborate with others and how to share ideas. 
and how to make sure everybody's ideas get included in the project. And a lot of that interpersonal piece, they have to be able to do that to be able to pull off group projects. And mm-hmm. as a skill set, I mean, that's that's such an important skill set for them to have um, as they go out into the real world, because in the real world, you are not working entirely on your own or very rarely. You know what, maybe it is a very big question, and I know there's no one answer to zoom in a little bit of teaching those interpersonal skills. And again, maybe I'll kind of focus on the elementary school, the first grade that you talk about and a little bit later. How do you teach this to kids? Are you being intentional and specific about them um, developing those skills while they're working on the activities? Or is there sort of more of a mindset, let kids figure it out on their own and find their own way through the group work? Um, I would say there's some of each, and I think it really varies by age group. So little ones, when they're working together, it's much more structured. I will do things like every 15 minutes, I will tell them switch drivers. Mm -hmm. Working on a project that involves coding. So whoever is actually on the computer or the iPad doing the coding has to physically hand it to the other child. And then the other child is doing the coding and the, the first person can suggest ideas, but they cannot actually touch the keyboard anymore. And I don't do that with my eighth graders. With my eighth graders, they've generally internalized that. And it's only if I see a group where one person is really hogging everything, then mm-hmm. I will go and talk to them. But with the little kids, that I structure a lot of that. So they are, first of all, they're learning that as an expectation. Mm-hmm. That everybody participates. And and it's giving them the scaffolding to work on some of the skills without being thrown in without the any support to figure mm-hmm. that out themselves. I was going to say, in talking about um, intended outcomes, what are some of the ways you assess your students or assess their mastery of whatever the learning outcome is? Um well, for the, especially for the older kids, they still have all the traditional tests and, and all of that stuff. And I give programming quizzes for the little kids, not so much, but I'm with programming. You really can tell a lot or with engineering things because either they make something that works mm-hmm. or they don't, or they have, they've got a good idea, but I'm not grading on success per se. It's not like if they make, if, they make something and it doesn't work, that that means that they didn't get it. I'm mm-hmm. looking at, do they have an idea? Are they able to describe it? Are they able to iterate on it? So they, mm-hmm. can they analyze it, figure out what piece of it is not working and improve it? And I care about that much more than whether they get something that quote unquote works. Mm-hmm. You mentioned also that the older kids do the regular assessment. Do you find that it's easier for them to do more standard type of assessment, even though their approach to learning was more project based? Uh, I think so. I mean, they, well, they, our kids get a real mix. So they, they're, they're plenty used to problem sets and tests and, mm-hmm. and all of that. Though I think we structure them a little differently. I'm still, I, very much I'm trying to make my kids think about their learning and be autonomous. Um, so, for example, when I give tests to my eighth grade, they can always skip a question. Just designed that way. Yeah. There are 10 questions. You do any nine. But you have to tell me when you hand in the test which one you didn't do that I shouldn't grade. So even if they do them all, they have to tell me which one they don't want to count in their score. And I find that that reduces the anxiety a huge amount, gives them that maneuvering room and also gets them to step back and think about, do I understand this? You know, another big topic, you teach a lot of the engineering types of activities to kids, gender. What is your experience with that, especially starting from the early age? Are there differences? If so, what are those differences and how do you leverage different things? As, as a teacher? Huh. I feel like I see fewer differences now than I used to. And I think partly that's I'm catching them at a younger age. Mm-hmm. Um, traditionally, what you see is a difference in experience level. 
But even with the young kids, you get a lot more boys who've done a lot of block building and things mm-hmm. like that, and the spatial things than the girls have. And that, so they start out on at different levels. So I think I, I try to do very open ended, playful activities to start with. So kids have a chance to just mess with the materials a bit and try to level the playing field a bit so that the girls or other kids who haven't had experience with the materials don't feel at a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. That's up with Lego too. Yeah. Or with coding where, you know, more boys get sent to the summer coding camps than girls. Mm-hmm. It's just that I'm the parent of two daughters. So this has always been a topic that's very, dear to my heart encourage a girl both of my children who are now adults are both um software engineers so I'm too yeah. <laughs> so do, do you think that was a parental encouragement oh oh yeah <laughs> poor kids didn't stand a chest uh, well yes and no I mean I think that was also an interest level they came at it from very different angles the two kids the one was really into robotics the other one had zero interest in it <laughs> So I wanted to follow this line of conversation here, thinking about, so the community doesn't talk a whole lot about learning styles, but there are different types of learners. And you have those who need a minute or two to really think and process what it is they're being asked to do. And those who just jump right in and start doing stuff until they come across something that makes sense. How do you structure, do you structure your class activities in a way that it benefits both. Um, yeah, and I think some of it is just doing things a variety of ways, not always doing yeah. the same way. So mm-hmm. there will be activities where, for example, they have to come up with a, a design that they're going to do and make a sketch of it first, and I have to approve it before they can go get materials. So it's right. forcing them to step back and do that, that plan. Um, and I find the quality of what they produce goes way up Mm. if you do that if they are forced even if they even if they end up not using that plan even if once Mm -hmm. they start building and things they change it radically just that having to stop and think and plan before they touch any materials makes a big difference but there'll be other times where i let them just jump right in or there will be if if there are materials that they're not necessarily familiar with it's really important to give them an explore time yeah where they're explicitly just getting used to the materials and then you can step back and have them plan. But I'm hoping also that if you build in that planning, that the kids who are not natural plan ahead kids see the benefit to it. I I like that that approach. (laughs) I feel that for some, the experience with Lego, especially early on, could be focused on following the instructions. You know, not specifically the uh, Lego Duplo, but you get a little bit old and you get into following the instruction and building whatever you want to build. Do you feel that, is that a benefit to the kids? Or is that something that could prevent them from maybe playing around and being messy and figuring out different types of solutions? I tend to not use the building instructions very much. So I tend to let them mess around and I'll show them some things. If you want to connect things at right angles, here's a, mm-hmm. here's a few ways you can do it. Um, and I'll, I will use builds often, especially with the older kids, more as reference. You know, if a kid wants, I'm trying to make some sort of back and forth motion and I will actually pull out building cards that have those sort of mechanisms on them. Mm-hmm. They're using them with a goal in mind rather than just doing step-by-step building. Step-by-step, yeah. No, I think there is a place for step-by-step building also. And with the younger kids, it is so diagnostic to see who can spatially follow a build and who can't. That really helps me flag kids who have spatial issues. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, do you think that's also connected to the earlier discussion of the experience that, um, you know, some of the boys kind of get a little bit more, even through birthday gifts, et cetera, of, uh, Lego sets, that they get so tuned in into following the instructions and kind of going through them quickly? I think you get some of that, though. They also do a lot of open building. It's interesting. I feel like I used to have my kids had very gendered Lego experience that the boys mm-hmm. were all familiar with it and the girls aren't. And that has changed in the last few years. I have 
many more girls who have big Lego collections at home and are experienced Lego builders among my younger kids, which I, I see as a big plus. But I used to, for example, with my middle schoolers, until I got to know them well, I would not do mixed gender pairings in mm. my science classes where I used a lot of Lego because I found the boys would tend to hog the Lego and mm-hmm. shove the girls aside. And so I used to put boys with boys and girls with girls. Um, I, I still tend to do that, actually, at least till I get to know them, just so, so I don't have girls who get shoved aside. Mm. Interesting. So, so it is one of those obvious differences that you can see. That's yeah. As I said, but I feel like that's gotten less less of an issue over the years. And now with my little kids, as I was saying, I've been really struck by how many of the girls come in with Lego experience. So now you are back in the classroom. Is that correct? I'm back in the classroom. Yeah. Yeah. If you would have had a preference, like how are you? Are you incorporating like lessons learned from when you had stuff virtually to now you're in the classroom? Like, were there any things you brought over that you're like, oh, this worked really well last year. Let me let me try to see how it looks now in my class, my face to face class. Well, one thing certainly that the more individual things, building in things with this more individual things. Mm-hmm. Um, and with my older kids, I'm much more blending the the virtual things with the real things. So I started using Google Classroom when we went virtual, which I hadn't used before. And I now use it all the time. And I make I run each of my classes with a set of Google Slides, which I can then give to anybody who was absent. So there's mm-hmm. I wrote a lot more electronic stuff in that way. And I'm posting all of their assignments both in Google Classroom And I'm giving them paper copies and they can choose which they want to do. If they want to give me an electronic version, that's fine. If they want to handwrite something, that's fine, too. But it's their choice. Yeah. You think the kids appreciate having this option? I I think they do. I think partly because there are some kids who have a strong preference. And I think also just it sends the message that that I really care about them and Mm -hmm. doing my best for them. And even though it's. You know, it's extra work for me to have both options that you know, I'm if it's better for them, I'm going to do it. And I think that's an important message for them to get mm-hmm. just an adult who, who really cares. And I think that makes them more willing to then come see me for help, for example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The students learn to come and ask for help and acknowledge their mistake or show that they don't know something, especially when they work in groups. The reason I'm bringing it up because, you know, every time you talk about teamwork and there's this common concept of psychological safety now a little bit more applicable for adults, where one of the important things when you work together with people is to be confident in expressing some of your ideas or, you know, even if those could be mistakes. And I wonder with younger kids, do they learn to express themselves in a group setting and to raise questions and maybe that's back again to this interpersonal skill set to kind of show that they don't know something because that's I feel is a challenging one. Um, certainly in my classes it's really okay not to know things mm-hmm. and I try to model that if something comes up and I don't know I am always really upfront with them that I don't know and present it as a This is so cool. I'm so eager to find out how are we going to figure this out. And then if if it's a question where I go look up the answer, I make sure I come back to them with the answer mm-hmm. later. Um, and I think also building in, for example, when kids are sharing, when they share projects, to have them share what you did and then one thing that was hard during the project and how you improve or one problem you encountered and what you did to try to solve it, to actually build that in, build some of that process into final presentation. So they see that as an important aspect of it and not just that final end product, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that it's interesting about group dynamics. I feel like with two people, it's a lot easier. So managing the dynamics of two is much easier than bigger groups. I think 
classrooms where teachers are having to work with larger groups of kids, I think that gets much harder. Do you teach them how to work in groups? Like, do you tell them these are the roles you should have and allow each person? Like, is there a way, a time when they're instructed? I know you talked about switching roles, but are they ever really instructed how to work together? I'm just curious. Um, yeah, with the, I think with little kids, they are. With my bigger kids, I'm not unless I'm seeing a problem, generally. Mm-hmm. But with mm-hmm. the little kids, yeah, so there, there'll be times when we assign roles and things. Um, I think it's really important if you do that, especially if you give the kids some choice, to be careful about what roles kids end up in. It's very easy for girls to end up being the recorder and the peace mm-hmm. finder. That's very interesting. Yeah. Oh. So kind of rotating the roles is really important. Right. Yeah. You know, another thing, just kind of come back to this idea of somebody being the sort of leader of the group and somebody else just kind of going along and not necessarily participating and doing the work. How do you deal with that with the younger students? And it's also funny that you mentioned that because this is one of the very common problems with undergraduate students. <laughs> <laughs> this group dynamic and you wonder why because you know many don't have this experience of working mm-hmm. in a group and figuring out even what their style is so I wonder how you deal with that in earlier grades um you know what the place where I feel like I have to deal with it more actively is the later grades the earlier grades they're generally switching partners every time and so you don't get those dynamics developing in the same way mm-hmm. the based on the kids' personalities, but with my older kids, they are with, my eighth graders have some say in who their lab partner is, but they have the Mm -hmm. same lab partner for a term. So that's where I find I need to be careful about them falling into the sort of patterns. I've done things, I had one group where I actually ended up with two kids who were very passive. (laughs) And get very little done. Yeah, there was, there was no driving force. And yes. I ended up saying to them that they needed a driver. And so my deal with them is when they walked into class every day, I would say to them, who's driving today? And they mm-hmm. had to tell me who they had appointed the driver. Could not be the same person every time. And then I would mostly talk to that person about their progress. And that <laughs> person then feel, knew that they had to keep their group moving. And it, it actually made a huge difference for those mm. To have somebody who was the driver each day. That's very interesting. <laughs> Smart. And then, but often you have the other problem. You have a one kid who's always the driver. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I will talk to both kids separately, both that driver to keep them from taking over, and also the the kid who's more passive about how how to get them more involved. And depending on the group, I'm more active in some of those interventions than in others. In your experience, did you find that more passive kids, because, you know, sometimes there is a connotation that it's more because a person doesn't want to do work. But I don't think that's true. In your experience, what what are the associated reasons with that? Yeah, I would say it's not it's very rarely that they don't want to do work. Though there may be types of work they don't want to do. If they just mm-hmm. don't like coding and they do like building, mm-hmm. it's very easy just to shove the coding off on your partner. But I think a lot of it can be a lack of confidence mm. or it can be just somebody who is a less assertive personality. You can get railroaded by someone else. Yeah. So, so okay. teachers' engagement is really critical at that point. Right. And I've had... You know, as I said, I will do some interventions and things, and then I will do things like I've I've only done this a few times in my career. But if I have a pair, it's just it's just really not going well. Um, and I have a kid who's complaining to me about the dynamics with their partner. I will do something um, what I call the the Sharpie solution, where we'll arrange a signal, and I've often it's often been a Sharpie. Where the kid can at any point say to me, Miss Bratzel, do you have a Sharpie I can borrow? And I know that is their, their signal that things are really bad and they need me to come intervene right now. 
because it's wow. it's the sharpie. Their partner doesn't know that that you know that was a cry for help. And I show up with the sharpie and <laughs> iron out whatever the problem is. And they don't even use it that often, but just knowing they have that, that if things get really bad, they can ask for a sharpie can really help those situations because they feel like there's a safety net there. That's very creative. Yeah. <laughs> Barbara, I remember also at some point you talked a little bit about mindset that you think, and I think your school as a whole focuses on for students to develop. I don't know if you can comment on that a little bit. Um, yeah. So we're very much, we don't want kids saying, I'm not good at that. And the one that drives me absolutely wild, and I'm sure it probably drives you wild too, is the, I'm not good at math. Mm-hmm. Or science. No, 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 no. no. Yeah. Or science, right. But somehow, mm-hmm. even hear that from parents, they'll say, I can't help my kid with their homework because I'm no good at math. And no, that's, we don't, we don't say that. It's, you can be not experienced with something. Mm-hmm. You may have aspects of things that are hard for you. Like I am a ter- I'm terrible at calculations. I know if I do calculations, there's going to be a mistake in there somewhere. And I was a math major in college. You know, at some point I realized that math is not actually calculations. Um, but just to have them, first of all, realize sort of where their growing edges are, the things that they need to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, but also realize that everybody's always working on those growing edges. And that's what you do. You don't say, oh, I'm not good at X. Mm-hmm. So how does the motivation feed into that? You know, say some of the kids just not motivated by I don't know, particular subjects. Although, again, like you said, with the math, it's, it's not about calculations, it's about something else. How do you get get them motivated about something that maybe they're not that excited about? Um, hmm. Yeah, there, I mean, there's always, there might be a subject they're not interested in, but I think, I think the idea of a growth mindset is actually very motivating because it gives them, it gives them a path. You know, this is something I can learn. This is something I can get more experienced at and get better at. It's a very optimistic message. Yeah, but how do you teach them that? How do you teach them about getting better at things or the growth mindset? Uh, yeah, how do you kind of gently move them towards a growth mindset stance? Okay, well, I'm, I'm very clear about sharing things I'm not good at with them. I mean, mm-hmm. all of my kids know I'm a klutz, and here I am on crutches, and <laughs> so I can tell for sure I'm a klutz. Um, I often will talk about, like, I'm very good with things I see. I'm terrible with things I hear. Mm-hmm. I know that that if somebody tells me a phone number just orally, the chances I'm going to get all those digits in the right order are close to zero. And if you share some of those things with kids, this is something I know I'm bad at, and here's how I get around it. I I try to have people write things down for me or whatever. And if Mm -hmm. they can help figure out what their strengths are and what the things are that they need to work around to shore up, that's, it's again, a very optimistic, optimistic message. Yeah. There's something that you can do. It's not that you just, Oh no, I'm bad at this and it's hopeless. Mm -hmm. There's, there's things you can do. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, and sometimes you might not be it, it's it's a complex kind of picture because just the motivation or not being able maybe to spend enough of time to figure things out, you know, but everything gets blamed on motivation. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's not always, you know, sometimes there is a way to kind of play with things around and um, like you say, learn around the edges and figure out your way. And then the motivation might come from from the experience. I don't know. I I just don't see kids that aren't motivated. I mean, I don't I don't think that's the and that isn't how I would frame it at all. It's that you yeah. may get a kid who's overwhelmed, or yeah. you may get a kid who's more interested in other things, so that they just might you know in their list of priorities, you know, spelling or whatever it is is pretty low down on their list of priorities. That doesn't. But there's something else that they're really interested in almost always. The kids I really worry about are the kids who aren't interested in anything. And there aren't very few of those kids. But those are the ones I really worry about. Even if somebody's really struggling, if they have some other passion, I'm not as worried about them. 
And I'm trying to find ways of leveraging that passion. Is there some way we could use that passion or the way that you think about it or some piece of that to help you with the things that you're struggling with? So then you have to be quick to think on your feet, right? So as you're getting to know your students, realizing, well, this one, just giving them a Lego might not work. But then I I guess it goes back to your point about using a variety of um, activities then kind of pull everyone in at different times um yes i think it's important to do a variety of things but i think also as you see things especially with kids who are a little older you can talk about them mm-hmm. I, I see that you i have this with with a kid i'm working with now where she can she actually can read a problem come up with the right equation she knows how to tackle it but actually then matching up the numbers into the equation she will get mm-hmm. them mixed up mm-hmm. and I said to her I, I here's what I'm seeing does that sound right to you and she said yeah that's definitely what's happening and we brainstormed possible ways of helping her organize those numbers mm-hmm. and some of the ones that I came up with like let's make a table and you know and you can fill in the pieces on the chart and then use that to write your equation and she's like yeah that's just too much work I'm not going to do that <laughs> and that's but that's good I and mean, that's I don't want somebody who just says, yeah, let's do that when they don't mean it. And mm-hmm. we decided, yeah, that was not going to work for her. And we finally, what she's doing now is she reads the problem. She underlines each number and tags it, you know, D for distance or T for time. And that feels very doable for her and helps keep her from getting mixed up. Mm-hmm. And I think just for anything, just treating it as a partnership that right. I am here to help you be your best self and what can I do to help you one question I have just thinking about maybe some of the uh, teachers who are just beginning their career and maybe they're in the classrooms that are large and it's overwhelming and they might say well gee I just don't have it in me and don't have time and I don't really know how to find this individual pathway to a student to be able to develop this type of partnership and I guess, is there an advice that you would have for a teacher like that? You know, what are one or two small steps they can take to get a little bit close to the personalities of students so the learning is meaningful and tailored more to the students, even if the classroom could feel overwhelming? I think some of it is just a shift in mindset for the teacher. I, when I started out teaching, I thought of my class as a class, mm. the group. And I no longer do that. I think of it as a room full of individuals. And I think, I think just shift, making that shift just changes the way you approach kids and approach teaching. But did it make it more overwhelming for you? You know, thinking of a group versus (laughs) thinking of uh, so many individuals, how to kind of overcome that? I don't. I think because so. I think, think teaching always is going to suck up a huge amount of time, and you're just, mm-hmm. if you're a teacher, it's going to take a huge amount of time. And I think to the extent that you're dealing with individuals and helping individuals, that feeds into the whole class. Partly because strategies that may work for one individual may be helpful for everybody. Mm-hmm. If you even if you just offer them as options to everyone, and some of the kids are taking you up on it, there you've reached some more kids. Mm-hmm. And I think if, just if the kids feel like this teacher is looking out for us, that makes a difference with how easy it is to deal with the whole group. If they feel like that you are on their side and really rooting for them and there to help them, it mm-hmm. just it, it, it's it's more of a sort of a, almost a family. Yeah. Very interesting. You know, it's also kind of brings us a little bit to shift at different levels to the online. And there was this one big concern. How do you build trust with students and how do you convey that you care about their learning experiences? And I think, you know, this point is actually true whether you're in face to face or online situation. But mm-hmm. I think there's a very important point that you're talking about this mind shift and, and, and sh- viewing students as individuals and showing, figuring out way to support them in this, in this process. And I think just individual connections with kids too, which I found I had to really work on when we were virtual. Um, so that was harder. 
that was hard Wait. because when you're when they come into the room, you you've got that that sort of mushy time as they're coming in where you can connect with individuals, and that's harder when they're zooming in. What did you find that worked for you when you zoomed in? One thing was just to open the classroom five or ten minutes early, without really advertising it that much, and kids would come early. I if kids that wanted to come in and just chat would show up five minutes early. Interesting. And we would just shoot the breeze, but it was the same kids who would be coming in every time. Just just have that that moment of connection. I know that was something that a lot of instructors I talked about talked to. Both on the podcast and off, talked about how important it was those little informal interactions that happen before mm-hmm. and after class, um, and that they missed that a lot when they were virtual, not being able to just have that quick little chit chat with their students for sure. This sounds very artificial, but was really effective. I actually did five minute conferences with my kids. Mm-hmm. I would just take a period where it was just conferences and they each had a time at five minute intervals and they would come on and it would just be me and that kid and we would just do a five minute check-in or even just a three minute Mm -hmm. check-in so that I knew I was having an individual conversation with with every one of my kids. Yeah, it's important to have this one-on-one touch point with your instructor for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Barbara, this was really interesting. Thank you so much for talking to us today. I think we learned a lot. I learned a lot. I'm sorry. I was talking your ear off here. (laughs) (laughs) It always feels like they're to be continued because there's so so many interesting topics. And And I also really would like you to maybe mention and talk briefly about your upcoming book. So do you remember, you remember Rob Torek, don't you? A little bit. Um, so, he and I have both been teaching for a million years and we're really excited about this book because it's, it's not for teachers for a change. It's, it's for kids. And the idea is it's aimed at kids who have gotten the retail Lego set and are at their house with this set. Mm. (laughs) Um, And it's very much, I think trying to do what we both do in our classes for kids that aren't in our classes through a book. So it's very much open-ended um, projects to try and it's sort of basic principles of what loops are and what what are some sturdy ways of building rather than specific instructions because if you go look at like kids robotics books mm-hmm. they tend to be full of just these so cool projects but they're very structured it's mm-hmm. okay here are the 300 steps you need to build the super cool robot and then here is the fancy program that you're going to use to run it. We really want to turn that on its head and say, here are some basic principles that you can use. And now you can go design your own robot. And it's probably not going to be as fancy as the super fancy one, but it's going to be yours. Barbara, that's wonderful. It was great to talk to you. I felt like we had a lot of really useful insights. And um, it's complex conversation. So we well, thank you for very thankful. Me, uh, yammer on here. Thank you. Good talking to you. All right. Take care.